But we've been working through a series uh, called A Gem-Filled Story based on Acts chapter 8 and uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. And um, this story has a lot of little gems in it that are often missed when you just do a casual read of the story. And so we've been peering into some of these gems. And today we're going to riff off a line of what this, this Ethiopian eunuch says when he says, you know, how can I understand the scriptures unless I get help? And we're going to talk a little about, about that same cry that sometimes comes from our own heart when we read the Bible, that sometimes we're like, this, this is more complicated than I'd like. And then we're going to kind of bring it to uh, a conclusion in, in Jesus. And so we've seen in this story that Philip, who was a, an early church leader, uh, was uh, scattered because of persecution. He ends up in Samaria and he starts telling people about Jesus and there's this crazy revival. People are being healed and there's miracles happening and, and, and there's hundreds of people coming to listen to him. And then God does a strange thing, which we talked about. He calls Philip away from this revival to a multiple day journey down to a wilderness road in the middle of nowhere. God doesn't tell him why he's going there. He just says, go. And Philip goes. And so Philip is waiting in this wilderness road, and along comes one of the strangest of folks, the last person he'd probably ever think of. And it says in the text that now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the, of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. And so he comes across this chariot, as it's going to say, and, and it's this high up official who is an Ethiopian eunuch, and he had just been to Jerusalem, and he had been worshiping God there. And again, a casual read of this text might go, well, isn't that kind of cute that he, you know, goes up and worships at the temple. But what you realize if you dig a little bit deeper is he actually was not welcome to worship in the temple. Uh, he was not welcome to even become a baptized follower of God because he was a eunuch. And we looked at this text in Deuteronomy 23, which very clearly says, no eunuch is to enter the congregation of God. And, and folks in those days applied this meaning that the, the eunuchs weren't allowed in the temple. And there were a lot of other folks who were, weren't allowed in the temple too, but uh, they, could, they couldn't, if, if, no matter how much they love God, if they wanted to become a baptized follower, a convert to Judaism, they, he couldn't. Simply because he you know, had the wrong sexuality. He, he was a eunuch. He, was, he had been castrated. He wasn't welcome. And, and what's fascinating about the story, and actually the main point of this whole story, which we'll get to next week, is that Philip, knowing there was a clear scripture that excluded this eunuch, Philip looks at him and knowing the heart of Jesus says, you know, I know there's a scripture that says that you're not allowed into the family of God, but Philip says, I'm going to baptize you because I think that's what Jesus does. And Philip will take this eunuch and baptize him and welcome him in to the family of God. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. But uh, well, we're going to hit another thing today. So uh, he's staying alongside the road. This Ethiopian eunuch comes by and it says, The Holy Spirit said to Philip, Go over and walk along beside the carriage or the chariot. Uh, Philip ran over and heard the man, this is the Ethiopian eunuch, reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you are reading? The man replied, how can I 
unless someone instructs me. And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit down with him. Now, this just little side note here is uh, when you read Bible stories, you need to understand that they're, they're most, most of the time summaries of what happened. They're not like play-by-play, word-by-word, you know, transcripts of the exact event. Because, I mean, there's just no way. I mean, I mean, some random guy that the Ethiopian eunuch would never know, just standing by the road, would actually end up from being stranger to seated in the carriage with this high-up official with all these guards only saying two lines. <laughs> I mean, obviously, there was a larger conversation that took place. I mean, if Philip tried to approach this chariot, this carriage, I mean, some of this high official's men would have come up, up and said, hey, what are you doing? There would have been a conversation. There probably would have been a conversation between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch before he is invited up. And, and that's just the reality of all the, the, the stories in the Bible. They only had so much room when they wrote it down in, in their scrolls, and they had to get to the point, just as we do sometimes. When we have a long conversation with somebody and then someone says, what happened today? And you summarize it really short because you don't have a lot of time or you don't have a lot of writing space. That's the way the stories are in the Bible. And we, we see this all over the place. Uh, like Mark chapter 2, it says, as Jesus walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the, his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Uh, most likely there was more to this story than just Jesus saying, follow me. I mean, most likely Matthew, who is the Levi guy here, would have met Jesus prior or there may have been a bigger conversation uh, because we understand, as, as theologians and scholars teach, that these are summaries of, not, they're not play-by-play, word-by-word uh, of, of, of what happened. And that's just the way they did history back then. I mean, we have video recorders and tape recorders and we want everything to be exactly the, exactly the way it was. It's, that's not the way they did history back then. Uh, to them, a summary was, 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 was perfect. That's how they did history. We also know this because there are times when you see in the Bible the exact same scene, and then yet it's worded differently in different Gospels. So we see the Last Supper where Jesus is, is introducing this thing called communion. And it's, the text says that Jesus took bread and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And, and, and Matthew says, Jesus says this, take and eat it, for this is my body. Mark says, Jesus said this, take it, for this is my body. Luke says that Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, obviously, if we think it's going to be word for word exact, I mean, this, this gets confusing. It's like, well, Jesus couldn't have said all three things. It's because that's not how they did history. It's just basically a summary of what Jesus said. And this is why you'll see the same story in different gospels. And it's laid out a little different. And, and Jesus says it a little differently because that's just the way they did history. Uh, the Bible stories are summaries. And so when we're reading the Ethiopian eunuch, there's probably more that was said than just those two lines, which is awesome because this is where those exercises which we just did, Ignatian contemplation, come into play. So you can read a Bible story, and because you know more happened, you can, you can use your imagination. You can enter in the scene, and you just you can think, you know, God, what, what else was said? And, and you can allow God to speak to you through those stories. And it can be a beautiful way of praying and engaging with Scripture and the Holy Spirit by entering in and, and pondering the other things that may have happened. And, and we know this. John himself in John 21 said, but there are also many other things that Jesus did, 
If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And God has gifted us with our imagination and just a, a way that we can engage with God through prayer and, and, and fill in some of the holes in Scripture and just say, God, would you speak to me? I mean, sometimes when you read the story of Jesus calming the storm and then you really enter it with your imagination, God can speak to you in different ways. And maybe he did that for you this morning. So in Acts chapter 8, Philip asks, do you understand what you are reading? And, and the man replies, how can I unless someone instructs me? Or how other translations put it, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And I don't know about you, but often when I read scripture, I got the same question. <laughs> it's like, how can I understand this unless someone guides me? Holy Spirit, would you help me to understand. Father, would you help me to understand? Jesus, would you help me to understand? Scholars, would you help me understand? Theologians, would you help me to understand? Because the reality is the Bible isn't always simple. I mean, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading it, and, and he can't understand it. And sometimes we read sections of Scripture, and we can't always understand it. In fact, we've already run into this already in this text. I mean, we read Acts chapter 8, and then we go back to Deuteronomy 23, 1, where it says, no eunuch is, is to enter the congregation of God. I mean, that just kind of makes the Bible more complicated, doesn't it? It's just like, why is that verse in there? It shouldn't be in there because Jesus welcomed those people. Why, why does it say they're not? It makes it more complex. Um, so we're going to talk about some reasons why the Bible is complicated, just so you don't feel alone, and I don't feel alone. But we're going to bring this back to say it can be complicated, but it can also be quite simple when we bring it back to Jesus. So the first reason why we might cry out, you know, you know, uh, God, I need help understanding the Bible, is because of time and cultural differences. And again, we've already seen this, and we talked about this last week in our text. In Acts chapter 8, it says, Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And, and if you think, you think the Bible is just really simple, you'd read the, uh, this verse and say, I understand that. This eunuch was an Ethiopian, and he served under a queen named Candace. Wrong and wrong. And we talked about this last week, because that's actually not, it's what it says, but it's not what it means, because the Bible was written a long time ago. And back in those days, the word Ethiopian met, meant any uh, black African. And the Candace was not the name of the queen, but it was the name given to any sort of high-up official of the regions of northern Sudan and, and southern Egypt. And that is where the guy would have been from. So it's not quite as simple sometimes, the Bible, because it was written a very long time ago. To put it in perspective, this is King David. Uh, we, we read the stories of King David, but sometimes we forget to realize how long ago that was. I mean, think about the year 5,000 ahead of us. I mean, think about where technology is going to be and thinking is going to be in the year 5,000. As far ahead as the year 5,000 is, that's how far back King David lived. I mean, think about how much technology has changed like in the last 50 years. I mean, think about the year 3,000 and then 4,000 and then 5,000. Again, 5,000 is as far ahead as King David lived far ago, long ago. I mean, it's a huge gap. I mean, the year 4,000 is as far ahead as Jesus lived long ago. I mean, it's a long time ago, and there are big cultural differences. And so when we're reading Scripture, sometimes we think that it was, it was like, it was written yesterday, so it just means what I think it means. But it doesn't always mean what you think it means, because it's very ancient. 
I mean, this is probably one of the best examples. And I may have shared this at another point, but, but this is a really good example because sometimes we Christians get it really wrong because we think it was written yesterday. And so we think we read it like it was written yesterday, but yet we don't understand the cultural differences. For instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head, for this is the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. And there are churches still today that will make women wear head coverings when they come to church. It was more of a thing in the past, but because they would say, well, you pray in church, so every woman has to have a head covering. And uh, along the same lines was, you know, women shouldn't have short hair or, you know, they should have uh, a head covering. Uh, but we know that this was written about 2,000 years ago. And we also know now, because of studying research, that we can dig up these ancient medical documents and we understand the medical thinking of those days. And back in those days, they actually thought that women, woman's long hair was actually a sexual organ. Uh, without getting too graphic, they, they thought that if the longer a woman's hair was, it had vacuum power, if you will, for semen. And so it was seen just like a sexual organ. And therefore, just as we cover up sexual organs, it needed to be covered up. Now, we know better medically now. <laughs> uh, we know that, that hair, whether you have it or not, has nothing to do with getting pregnant. But back then, they thought it did. And so it's like you need to wear a head covering because you're coming to church and, you, and, and basically you're, you're, you're exposing your genitals. That's the way they thought back then. But we know that's not the way it is. And we know better medically now. And so we would look at this and say, this is not for today. Uh, it, it's complicated. The Bible can be complicated because sometimes we're reading it and you're like, Man, is this for today? Is this not for today? Help me understand, God, Holy Spirit, help me understand this. Because sometimes it can be complicated because of cultural differences. And, uh, and we know this because most of us understand that we don't follow most of the Old Testament commands. I mean, there's like 613 of them. Most Christians understand we don't follow all those commands. And some Christians say, well, we follow New Testament commands. Well, we'd like to think that, but we don't. We, there are a lot of New Testament commands we actually don't follow. And again, this makes it more complicated. For instance, 2 Corinthians 13 says, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's a command, and it's commanded five times in the Bible. Now, you think if something's commanded five times, it's like God saying, you better do this, but, but we don't do it. Why? Because we understand that we greet people differently today. Back then, and in some cultures today, if you go, you know how they kiss you on the cheeks? Uh, they did that back then. We don't do that here. We, well, in non-COVID times, we shake hands and we give hugs. Uh, we would take this command and we would say, we would adapt it to our culture. And you know what? No Christian has a problem with that. But the reality is we do this with a lot of other things. Like here's another command, New Testament command we don't follow. Men should pray in every place by lifting up holy hands. This was a command that men, whenever you pray, you should lift up holy hands. But, but we, never, we don't command people to do that. It's a New Testament command, but we don't do it. Why? Because we understand it's a cultural difference. Back then, when, if I was the pastor and said, let's pray, all of us would raise hands and we would open our eyes and look upward to heaven. That's how people prayed back then. You know, we go like this. <laughs> That's our tradition, but they went like this. And, and, but we understand that Paul is saying that, that we need to pray, but we modify this command to our culture. And we say, you, we don't make you do this. You can pray however you want, but you should be praying. Another one that we don't, follow today, though there are some churches that would still, is 1 Timothy 2.9. Again, this is a command. Women, their adornment must not be with braided hair and gold or pearls or expensive clothing. 
I mean, we don't go around checking out people's earrings. Oh, you got gold. Sorry. We, we don't look at women who have braided hair and say, oh, sorry, you, know, you can't, you're not accepted here. I mean, no, we don't do that because we know this culturally had to do with the, the huge variance between the very poor in those days and the very rich who could afford jewelry and who could afford braided hair. And, and it, was, it was an inequality issue. We, we don't have that issue as much here. Because even if you couldn't pay your rent last month, we're rich in this culture. <laughs> uh, so we, we, again, another New Testament command we don't follow. And just, just a couple more. Uh, this one we don't follow. And again, this is a clear command in the New Testament. Women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. That's a command in the New Testament. But we don't do that. Why? Because we're 2,000 years later, entirely different culture. Uh, there are some churches that have modify this and say, you know, women can't preach or women can't teach certain men or whatever. They try to try to rearrange it, but we don't do that. Uh, in fact, sometimes there are commands in the Bible which we teach the exact opposite in today's culture. Like 1 Peter 2, 18. Slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. I don't know any Christian today who have came across a slave would say, you know, you should submit to your master even if they're harsh. You no, know, we'd be like, no, you need to respect God in you enough to put up some boundaries and slavery's not okay. We would teach the exact opposite of this. And so this makes the Bible complicated. Uh, I mean, I, I wish it were simple. I mean, I wish it was just laid out and God just says, you know, here's all the commands for 2021 and, and here's all the ones that are not for today, but it's complicated and, and churches and denominations and theologians fight over which ones are for today and which ones are not for today. It's just complicated. And so like the Ethiopian eunuch, I cry out and say, help me understand this thing, Holy Spirit, because sometimes it can be complicated. It can be complicated because of interpretational differences. I mean, sometimes we say, you know, the Bible tells us clearly, but then someone else says the Bible tells us clearly, and they're saying the exact opposite thing. You know, we would say today, at least I would say, you know, the Bible clearly tells us that we need to love people passionately and radically in, 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 in an other-centered kind of way. But there have been times in church history where Christians have said the Bible tells us clearly that we need to kill those unrepentant folks out there, like in the Inquisition, in the witch trials. And, and again, it, it can make it complicated because of interpretational differences. I mean, if you look at church history, people have used the Bible to justify slavery and have used the Bible to bring its ab abolition. You know, when slavery was debated years ago, it was a theological argument because some would say, the Bible says slavery is okay. And some would say, no, the Bible says slavery is not okay. And they're using the same book because of different interpretational differences. Uh, some use the Bible to justify keeping women subordinate to men, and others use it to bring equality. Some use the Bible to justify violence against one's enemies. Some use the Bible to support nonviolence. Some use the Bible to justify political power, and some use it to denounce political power. It depends on one's interpretation. Again, it's like, you know, God, why didn't you give us an easier book? <laughs> I mean, God, help me to understand, Holy Spirit, help me to understand. Uh, the Bible can be complicated because of manuscript language and translation differences as well. I mean, uh, sometimes when you're reading along in the Bible, if you read different translations, you just say like, why does this one say this and this one say like something almost completely different? For instance, Psalm 22, 16 is, is a really good example. And again, this is kind of more rare in the Bible. This, this doesn't happen all the time, but in 
In some translations, it says, they have pierced my hands and feet. Other translations say, like a lion, they pinned my hands and feet. Another translation says, they hacked off my hands and feet. It's like, that's not like the same thing going on there. It's different. And part of this has to do, we have uh, translation from different languages. I mean, if you've been to a different country and you have a translator, you kind of realize that I'm sure everything I'm saying is not going through properly on the other end. But this is why we have scholars who spend their whole lives studying Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, trying to translate it the best way possible, but it's never possible to translate it perfectly. And sometimes there's enough nuance where one translation will pick this word or this way. And so we have differences in translation. There are differences in manuscripts because, uh, uh, you know, we don't have any of the original, original manuscripts. We have lots of copies of copies of copies and copies. And our manuscript tradition is very solid. Like, it's not like any of our main doctrines are questioned, but there's these little things here and there that are, that are slightly different, like this. And sometimes it's kind of interesting. I find this fascinating, especially to those who are into the end times, because I bug them with this. Revelation 13, 18, it says, Wisdom is needed here, the number of the beasts, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Do you ever read your little footnotes in your Bible? I do. You notice, under man, you'll probably have a little footnote, it says, or humanity. So when there's a difference, maybe in translation or manuscripts, it's right in your, they don't hide this. It's at the bottom. But notice what it says after 666. It says, some manuscripts read 616. And do you know our oldest manuscripts of the Bible actually say 616? The oldest ones do. But this is where these scholars who are textual critics and they, they pour over and they're trying to figure out which, which goes farther back, you know, they have to make a decision when they have the main text. And so they'll make the decision, well, let's go with 666 because that's kind of how Christians have seen it. But they'll put a little note at the bottom that says, well, some say 616. And you'll see this often in your Bible, these little notes that have a different phrase or different wording, or sometimes it can be entirely different. It's not hidden, it's there. You just got to read your notes. But again, this makes the Bible more complicated because like, is it 616 or 666? We're supposed to have wisdom is needed here, but we don't even know the right number. <laughs> God, would you help me? The Bible is complicated. Holy Spirit, scholars, help us through this. Sometimes it can actually make a difference in your view of God. Like Romans 5, 9, the NIV says that we're going to be saved from God's wrath through him. So you read this and it's like, you know, God has wrath towards us and Jesus needs to save us, save us from God's anger. Some translations use that, wrath of God or God's wrath, but other translations actually just say saved from wrath or from the wrath, but the actual Greek word just says the wrath. The real Greek word does not say God's wrath, it just says the wrath. And so there are theologies that say that Jesus saved us from the wrath of, of Satan and the fallenness of this world, but there's other theologies that say we're saved from God's wrath, but translators, when they translate the Bible, actually make a decision, and sometimes their interpretation of who God is gets in the Bible. And this is one of those places. And this is why you will see different denominations use different Bibles. So different groups of Christians have different Bibles because there's a little bit of interpretation in the translation and choice of choice. And so you see Catholics use these Bibles. The Protestants have a long list of Bibles, but mainline Protestants use different Bibles. Fundamentalistic Protestants are always King James only, right? And then you got the Orthodox who use different Bibles because, and again, this makes it more complicated. It's like, why can't the Bible just be all the same? <laughs> I mean, God, why don't you just make it simple? I mean, the reality that we have all these denominations who are disagreeing over what the Bible says shows us that the Bible is really complicated. If the Bible were simple, we'd have one denomination. 
If the Bible were simple, we wouldn't need scholars who study all this stuff. I mean, there are no scholars who are like, I'm a scholar of Goodnight Moon. You know, the little kid's book? Because it's simple. <laughs> but we have New Testament scholars, Old Testament scholars, you know, scholars who study the text, scholars who study the ancient languages. We have scholars who just study Paul, scholars who just study the Gospels, scholars who just study, you know, uh, you know the, the, all of John's writings. And, 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 and those scholars who spend their entire life just studying one book of the Bible don't agree with each other sometimes. It's complicated. It's like, God, I feel for this Ethiopian eunuch because I understand, help me understand some of Scripture. And lastly, and then we'll get to the, why it's not so complicated. Uh, it's complicated because of troubling commandments and stories. And if you spend much time in the Old Testament, it doesn't take long to go like, it's like, what? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't read too many of them, but just maybe just a couple. But uh, like this one, Exodus 21. Again, this is, is longer ago than, than the year 5,000 is ahead. So again, this is way different culture. But it says, when a slave owner strikes a male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies immediately, the owner shall be punished. But if the slave survives a day or two, there is no punishment for the slave is the owner's property. It's like, what? So a slave owner hits their servant with a piece of log or something, and they die immediately. Okay, the, that owner's in trouble, but if he, if, he, if he lives and suffers for two days and then dies, the, the owner doesn't get any, nothing. Like, it's not even a slap on the wrist. Okay, that, that's troubling. I, at least I hope it's troubling. Um, I mean, many of us know, know this one. You know, suppose a man has a stubborn or rebellious son who will not obey his father or mother. Then all the men of his town must stone him to death. It's like, Hmm, that's, that's kind of odd parenting advice, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, but again, it's like that that's in the Bible and, it, and, it, and I wish it wasn't there, but it's there. It, just, it makes it more complicated because it's like, why is it there? I mean, it just seems, seems weird. And then sometimes you have stuff, stories that are troubling, but then Jesus comes along and this leads us to Jesus and he does the exact opposite thing. Like Numbers 15, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath. Then the Lord said to Moses, this man must die. So a guy is just picking up sticks for his fire, probably to cook some food on the Sabbath. And God commands Moses that this man must be killed for picking up sticks for his fire. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. It's like, that makes God seem like he's really mean or something like that. It makes it more complicated. But what makes it more complicated is Jesus... So this guy gets stoned for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And then Jesus comes along, who's like the true revelation of God. And he commands people to pick up their mat on the Sabbath. And this is why the Pharisees got so ticked at Jesus. Because they're like, the scriptures say, you know, if someone picks up something on the Sabbath, they're to be, they're to be killed. And Jesus say, no, I'm going to command people to pick up their mat. And I'm going to heal them on their Sabbath. And I'm going to mix up stuff on the Sabbath. He was breaking all these old commandment rules. In fact, he would say, you have heard it said in the Old Testament, but I say to you. And he would change it. I mean, Jesus came along and he was like putting to bed all these archaic laws. In fact, the Bible clearly tells us in Hebrews 8 that the old covenant is obsolete. And we did a whole message on that a few months ago. Um, but let's bring this back to Jesus. So Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the man replies, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter 
as a lamb is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And so this eunuch was reading this passage. He's like, this doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. Philip comes along and says, you know, I think I understand. And so he comes up there. And so the, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? So was he talking about Isaiah or was he talking about someone else? And Philip's going to say, he was talking about Jesus. So beginning with the same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. So he's reading scripture. He's like, I don't get this. This is complicated. I, I don't understand this. And then Philip brings in Jesus. And whenever we run into scripture and we think it's complicated and we get confused, all we need to do is bring in Jesus. Jesus takes the complicated scripture and he just makes it far less complicated. It's so complicated, but it makes it far less complicated. In fact, the Bible even tells us to go this way. Hebrews 1, it says, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. And so the Old Testament prophets, the law, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So here's Hebrews saying, you know, we have all these prophets of old and, and all these things of old, but in these last days, God is speaking to us through Jesus. He becomes the final word, the final authority. He becomes our filter. In fact, Jesus himself said that he is the way and the truth and the life. And when we read the Bible through this, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and we begin to look at scripture through Jesus it becomes a lot more simple. In fact, Jesus said, at the very end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. In other words, Jesus is the ultimate authority. And as uh, N.T. Wright, uh, who's probably one of the most famous theologian scholars of this day, very well respected, he, he says this, Jesus did not tell his disciples that all authorities invested in the books that they would write. He insisted that it was vested in his own person. That is Jesus who has authority. I mean, when Jesus started speaking, they were like, who is this man who speaks out of his own authority? <laughs> he came and he began to put to sleep some of these archaic laws found in the Old Testament. He begins to bring in a new way and new commandments and a new way of life because he is our authority and he is the foundation First Corinthians 3, no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. And as Jesus said, the scriptures point to me. And so we need to appoint, approach the scriptures through the lens of Jesus. We need to see him as the, as the foundation, that he is our authority. And so we come to a text that's complicated. We say, well, Jesus is my authority. How does this line up with the life and the teaching of Jesus, because he's my authority. He's the foundation. He is, he is the way, the truth, and the life. In fact, he is the word of God. Primarily the Bible, when it talks about the word of God, it's talking about Jesus, not the Bible. Uh, Jesus is the word of God. He's the authority. He's the, the foundation. So when I read about these, these crazy slavery texts, it's, it's like, does that line up with Jesus? No, it doesn't line up with Jesus. So we can put that to bed. Does saying that this Ethiopian eunuch could not be baptized and welcomed into the family of God, does, does that line up with Jesus? Well, no, it doesn't. And that's what Philip did. I mean, Philip knew very well that Ethiopians, this eunuch, could not be baptized, could not be a part of the family of God, but he had experienced Jesus. And he's like, I know Jesus ex accepted all these people who were not accepted. And so I think Jesus is good with this. And so he, he goes and he baptized 
Jesus. And, and we, we talked a little about this a few months ago, but, but I always like the illustration of a spaghetti strainer. When you, you, know, you cook spaghetti and you got all the, the noodles and the water in it, and it's complicated because it's just messy and you can't eat it like that. So what do you do? You take your spaghetti in the water and you pour it through a strainer and the spaghetti stays and all the water comes out the bottom and then you just eat all the good stuff, right? That is what we do with Scripture. And because we follow Jesus, He is the way, the truth, and the life, and He is our foundation, He is our authority. And because Scripture is so complicated, it's like spaghetti noodles and water all mixed together. It's like, how do I know what is right and wrong and you know, up and down and left and right? And what commandment do I follow and what do I don't? What was past and what is future? Just dump it through the spaghetti strainer of Jesus and just ask, does this line up with Jesus? His life, his teaching, the way he loved people, the way he accepted people. And if it lines up with Jesus, we're like, we're taking that. That's good. And then we're going we're gonna to live that way. And if it doesn't, then we're like, I don't get it. it. might not make sense, but it doesn't line up with my authority. So that's just the way it is. Uh, Brian Zand put it this way. The question isn't, can we find it in the Bible? The question is, can we find it in Jesus? Jesus says to every would-be disciple, follow me. We, we primarily follow Jesus. Yeah, we, we look to the Bible. It's, it's inspired and, and God breathed and, you know, there's wisdom and, and, and it's, it's, we learn about Jesus in there, but we don't primarily follow the Bible. We follow Jesus and we read the Bible through Jesus and, and we, we follow him. So Father, I, I pray as we read this complicated book that you left us with, and it's complicated because it speaks of generations past and in completely different cultures than ours. And it gets complicated. But God, we thank you that you have brought clarity to this world through Jesus. A clarity through the way he loved and served and welcomed and accepted people. So God, I pray you would give us Jesus' glasses. I would read the Bible through your son Jesus, that we would read other people through your son Jesus, that we would experience this life through the lens of Jesus. And so we look to him. We thank you, God, that you are so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen.